This is the RTE Lyric FM Leaving Cert Music Podcast. A series breaking down the Leaving Cert Music exam. Joined by second level music teachers Ethel Glancy and Mary McFadden, we'll bring you lots of discussion. Pointers for you to consider and suggestions on how you can get your mind exam ready. In this episode, we look at Gerald Barry's Piano Quartet Number no. 1. and Mary we're back we're back for Barry Barry's piano quartet the one everyone is scared of the one everyone not at all is intimate. I certainly was I certainly <laughs> was so we all know what a string quartet is chamber quartet but what is a piano quartet so I think it's important in answering what a piano quartet is is maybe we might look at the title of this work and it is as you said Sive uh, the piano quartet number one which would indicate that the composer uh, the living Irish contemporary composer from County Clare Gerald Barry wrote more than one so if you get an opportunity uh, maybe try and have a listen to his second quartet as well piano quartet so a piano quartet then um, he wrote this one in 1992 uh, but it's actually a chamber work for piano and three other instruments. And in this case, Barry uses the violin, the viola and the cello. With so few instruments, the students really need to be careful when answering a question on instrumentation to name the actual instrument playing. So, for example, if the answer is viola, it's not enough to say strings. So therefore, you need to be able to tell the different stringed sounds apart. The Piano Quartet was established really by uh, Mozart during the classical period. He wrote two piano quartets which were considered pioneer works at the time because piano was really in its infancy at that time where it was only really used for large-scale concertos and things like uh, uh, sonatas, smaller salon pieces. But in contrast to Mozart's classical style, a couple of hundred years later, Barry writes this piano quartet in a 20th century style, which, as you would expect, explores really unusual compositional techniques, really unusual features and really unusual uh, instrumental techniques. So I would say to students, don't be at all afraid by it. It's a really exciting piece. And every time you listen to it, you're going to find something new in there. But it's all about the 20th century style. So let's break it down then. What is it that students really need to be able to identify when answering this question? Well, one of the key features would be the structure of the work, to know what music you're listening to and then the music that immediately follows every section. The treatment of the eight different themes that are heard throughout. Be very familiar with all of Barry's 20th century style and the features of that. What compositional techniques he used. Um, for example, the techniques is about how the music is written what instrumental techniques he uses and they're about how the instruments are played. There's lots of very interesting new terminology and a different language associated with this quartet. And remember, it's not as just a simple task to learn off the definitions um, of the language that you're using, but more importantly, to understand them and be able to hear those features in the music and discuss it when they're used. 
So as with all the six questions on the paper, when answering a question on an excerpt you've just listened to, you must write your answer specifically referencing the music played in that excerpt. Remember, for the most part, this is a paper that will ask you a question and play the answer. But for the rest of of the question, you may be asked to compare what you've just heard in the excerpt with something that follows or another statement of that theme that was is somewhere else in the work. So maybe it would be a good idea, Ethel, to take a closer look at the structure of this work. Yeah, sure. So as you mentioned there, Mary, the work consists of eight different themes, which you will need to be able to identify by both eye and ear. And this can be really tricky, particularly Mm, in contemporary music. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, But if you listen regularly to the work, just like you might with your favourite album or favourite CD, if those still exist, you will be able to say what the next, like your favourite album, what's the next song? Well, then if you listen, it's only 11 minutes long, get it on your ear and have a strategy that will help you to remember which theme is which. Because very often in the exam, they'll play uh, one of the themes and they might ask you to say from what section of the work it comes from or to identify it. Now, I'll share a strategy that works with you. I'm not going to say this is the only way that works, but it's certainly the way that works for me. So what I do is, and I know lots of students and Mary, you probably try this. We've tried it together. Yeah, in fact, we, have. Um, yeah. we label the themes with capital letters A through to H, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H. And to help me remember how many times the themes are heard in the work, I use the following pin number one, three, nine. Three, two. I promise you, Sive, it's nothing to do with my bank account. <laughs> it is to do with the themes in Barry's work. And what I do then is above the number one, I write the sections A, F, G, H. And respectfully then over each of the remaining four numbers, I go B, C, D, E. Right? Okay. So if you've one, three, nine, three, two, if you total them up, you now have the total number of sections. There are 18 sections and that's the overall structure of the work. That is genius. Well, it works for me. (laughs) It works for me. But, you know, remember, you may not always just get asked about how many times, Mm. you know, we talked about or we need to probably mention about that skill of comparative. When you have more than one statement of a theme, it's Mm. really important to compare how the composer treats the different statements. So that pin number really references the number of times it's been played. But you heard Mary there saying how important it is to know what's coming next. So how would you tackle an exam question that asks you to describe the music that immediately follows a theme that you've just heard, you've just listened to in the exam, and you're well able to discuss that theme. You've just listened to it in the exam, but now you're you're just drawing a complete blank. It happens to us all. You know, you're drawing a complete blank on what comes next. Here's another couple of things that work for me. Because remember, we have to teach this, so mm-hmm. we have to have our own little strategies as well. So there are nine statements of the C theme. But do they all appear one after the other? No, they don't. But they're all, all the C themes appear in pairs. So you have C1 and C2, C4 and C5, C6 and C7, C8 and C9. Now, I know straight away, Sive, you're looking at me and you're saying, but Ethel, what happened to C3? Well, C3 is the only statement of the C theme that sits in between two different themes. All right. And that can be really helpful to know. And then there are three sets of couples. So two themes have come together and they're heard against one another. And I generally would get my students to write out the names for each of those couples, draw a box around them. And they are 
D2 and B3, they're the first couple, E2 and D3, and then lastly F and C8. And the real tip then is to remember that no two couples, they don't speak to one another, they never appear beside one another in the final score. They're always so having rows. They're always just a distance apart. So if you had to, just using those couple of tips there, knowing your PIN number, knowing that the C, the nine statements of the C are paired with the exception of C3. And then you have your three couples. I'm not going to give the answer here. You can pause the podcast, take a pencil, and you will be absolutely able to construct the 18 sections of the score. And like you said earlier, a lot of the 20th century compositions if this one in particular uses unconventional techniques. So how does one decipher and identify these techniques and what are they in particular? Well, there are lots to reference here, but one that's really important to mention is atonality, which is a strong feature of 20th century music. So when discussing it in the exam, we talk about the C theme, for example, being anchored in on the note A flat. However, because the third wave is between C natural and C flat, the music is neither major nor minor. Another example of amb- ambiguous tonality is in that B theme, which everyone loves to listen to, where the me- violin melody plays that really catchy tune centred around C sharp, while the viola plays an umpa type accompaniment on C natural. And the C jumps up to the G. And we clearly can hear the dissonance or the clash between C natural and C sharp. But we are also hearing hints of the dreaded tritone as the C sharp is also heard with the G. I think we should listen to that, Mary. I think it's, it's, it's a really good tune, actually, to 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 show that dissonance and that atonality and those beautiful clashes. Absolutely. Okay, so you'll have heard there that lovely dissonance of the C sharp against the C natural and the, the interval of the jowl, the dreaded tritone. Um, another really good technique, actually, and I think Barry does it so cleverly, is the changing time signatures. It would be very much a 20th century technique. But when you consider that this piece is 571 bars long, the time signature changes 330 times, mm-hmm. right? So, for example, he, he, in the opening bars of section D1, the time signature moves from 1-8-3-16 to 2-8 to 3-8 to 2-8 to 5-16 and 3-4. And there are many, many examples throughout the work. So it's not just that he uses and changes the time signature. He also uses irregular time signatures so you know I would suggest and I think Mary you probably agree with me Mm -hmm. have a listen 
decide for yourself on your own personal response to this and how does that changing time signature and those irregular time signatures or meters, how do they make you feel when you're listening to the music? I know for me, it certainly creates a a feeling of unpredictability or a sense of instability, but you'd have better words to, to, to describe it for yourself. A question that actually has sometimes been asked in relation to this in the exam, and our advice is please do not leave it blank. Have a go. And that is to fill in on the score that missing time signature. Right. And that can be tricky, can't it? Yes, you, know, you really yeah. have to look at the score. So you're nearly listening, but by eye you are listening. You know, we're trying to work out where are the groupings. So what I would suggest is one possible strategy is to check out the groupings of the notes. That will give you the bottom number of the time signature and then count how many groups there are. And that will give you the top. Now, don't make that added mistake of writing the time signature beside the question. If the question has asked you to fill it in on the score, make sure you do exactly what the task has asked. Go back up, go into the score and write it there. And this can be, you know, it can be really tricky for students. And Mm -hmm. I'll give you an example. If you have a bar that has a dotted quaver in it, sometimes students will see quaver and they'll say the time signature is one over eight. But you know that a dotted quaver is actually Mm -hmm. more than one quaver. Right. So what we would suggest is it has to be some derivative of that. OK, so go back to the dot quaver, ask what group a quaver can be further broken down into. And the answer is a semi-quaver, which is the 16th note. So now you have your bottom note. Yes. And, right. Process of elimination. Exactly. Right. So then you ask yourself how many semi-quavers are in a dotted quaver and you'll count three. So the answer then, and way hey, you get full marks when you fill in 316 on the score in the right place. So, you know, I would not leave this to chance. You know, some students go, I'll just chance it on the day. And that's natural as well. But don't give, you know, into a 10 mark question, you could have a full mark is a lot in a 10 mark question. So we would suggest keep looking at your score as you're listening. And sometimes maybe even just something silly. You might feel silly doing it. Putting your finger over the time signature and working it out by eye and then just lifting your finger and having looked. Did I get that right? Darn, I didn't get it right. Oh, I got it right. That's a really and good exercise. Yeah, it's just, yeah. It's just yeah. those little tips that'll help there, you know. And then checking to see, does that strategy work? And there's lots of other ones, Mary, isn't there? Have you another one? Yeah, another 20th century feature might be polymeter. And this appears only once in this work and have a look at it in the section F and C8, where the violin and the piano play kind of like a jig-like F theme and the viola and the cello play the augmented C theme. So the F theme moves from 4-2 to 2-2 and the C theme is played at the same time in 2-2, 2-4, 3-4 and 3-2. So can you imagine how unpredictable this ends up sounding? So this overall sense is further emphasised by his directions to the performer at that time of brittle, nervous, exaggerated. And then another one, retrograde, is another very good example of 20th century feature, as sometimes music can end up sounding like a new melody in this case. So exact retrograde only happens once in this work, where the theme E1 is D2 played in reverse. So in Section F and C8, snippets of the F theme in the violin are played in retrograde. Not quite exactly, but they're played in the piano part. 
And one actually, so one other feature I think yeah. we'd have to mention, Mary, is the telescoping. Yeah. So as I mentioned earlier, there are eight sections. So you have A through to H. And he very cleverly, you know, begins, uh, just by even knowing that, he starts and finishes the work with completely new material, right? So you might say, oh, gosh, OK, well, where's that feeling of finishing up and rounding off the music and that sense conclusion. of... Conclusion. Conclusion. Well, he very cleverly, gee, that second last section is what he uses a 20th century technique called telescoping, right? And what he does in nine bars is he takes notes from the beginning and end of all of the previous sections and he puts them all together and creates a completely new section of nine bars. It's quite... It's like solving a puzzle kind of, isn't it? It's genius. It's absolutely genius. And it's really great fun, um, you know, in with students saying... Where's that one? Mm. You have to become a detective. Where did Barry find that? You know, and I'm not suggesting that Barry sat down and said, you know, who's to know who who would dare say what any composer thought when they're doing it. But I would imagine that just all those nuances of sound possibly following around his brain. And he suddenly came up with this idea to put them all together in so many different uh, time signatures. In fact, it's the shortest section of the entire work. Mm-hmm. It's the shortest section of the time. I, I'm actually going to ask you to play it. I'm going to ask you to play it, Sive, because in even just to connect to something else we said, it's nine bars long. Would you hazard a guess as to many times he might change time signature? Oh, God. Nine bars? Yeah. I'm just going to double it. So I'm going to say 18 times. Well, fair play to you. He <gasps> does it eight. Now. Eight times. Let's have a oh, listen. Eight. Okay. eight. Eight times. Let's have a listen. So we've talked about a lot of 20th century techniques. What else do we need to know about? What other features and techniques do we need to know about that are not, you know, quintessential 20th century techniques? It's Forgive me, it's not so much that they're not 20th century. I think the... if. if I'm I'm a typical Irish here now, so I've answered your question with a different question. But what I think the whole piece and anything you'll be asked on is about 20th century techniques, right? But it's how they might ask it. Okay. It's how about how they might ask it. So they may they may not mention mention 20th century features at all, but they might ask you about the influences of Barry's style. All right. So if the question doesn't explicitly identify what influences, of course you could identify and talk about the 20th century uh, features. But there's also evidence of other influences in Barry's style, such as the Irish influences. As we mentioned earlier, Barry came from County Clare, good strong west of Ireland county there. Mary was talking about section F and C8. We hear reminiscences of a jig-like rhythm, that that six eight beautiful rhythm in the F theme, and that movement of the rhythmical group of three notes inferring the dance of the jig. Barry also uses Irish melodies in his work. In section A, we hear a version of Thurlough O'Carlin's waltz, Shivyogshi Moor, which is an in inversion. And in the very last section, section H we hear the Irish air, which was first printed in the Goodman collection in 1724 called Lord Mayo's Delight. I think we should have a little listen to this. Have a listen to the short snippet from Lord Mayo and see if you can pick out and hear and recognise the tune. (laughs) 
So were you able to pick out the Irish tune? All right. Well, that was Lord Mayo's delight, but maybe not as you might have expect to hear it in an Irish session down in County Clare, as in it would have been played solely in unison, but played here in two and three part canon. So with both of the Irish tunes, Barry uses Baroque influences of canon, polyphonic writing and inversion as ways of creating and bringing these two Irish tunes into a 20th century interpretation. So Mary... Canon and inversion is are terms that we keep hearing. They keep cropping up when we talk about Barry and specifically this piece. Yeah. To what depth do students need to know about these two techniques? Well, they're very important in this particular work. They're very important compositional techniques. And you'll have also have met them in the Bach piece of music as well. So it's very important for students to know these features inside out. So be careful as marks can be lost when there's confusion around, for example, what is a compositional technique as opposed to an instrumental technique. So a compositional technique is all about how the music is written and an instrumental technique is how the instruments are played. So a compositional technique that's peppered throughout this whole work is that use of canon. Again, be careful here um, because well learnt off definitions of what a canon is is not what we're doing here. It's, It's rather how Barry as a 20th century composer, uses that technique or skill in his work. Remember, describe is not define. As mentioned earlier, canon and polyphonic writing is an inherent feature of Baroque music, but he uses it and brings it into a 20th century style. So it's really important that when you're answering a question about canon, that you're able to mention the number of parts, what interval and what distance the canon is for. To give an overview, most of the canons are heard at the interval of an octave or unison or in the case of C9 in two octaves and in B2 in fifths. The distance is mostly at a crotchet with the exception of E1 and C6 where the distance is at a quaver. This is one way how Barry brings canon writing into the 20th century with such a close distance in the entries. So... Another, for example, is in the opening A sections, all the instruments start together and the canon emerges, so to speak. Whereas in Baroque music, for the most part, one instrument would begin and then the next enter and the, and okay. the others following. So before we finish up, could you give me um, an example? You were talking about distinguishing between a compositional and an instrumental technique. Could you give me an example of an instrumental technique? Sure. Um, As Mary said there, an instrumental technique is all about how the instrument is played. And there really are so many. There's quite a few in this work. Everything from double stops, flautando, which is directing the performer to play a flute-like sound by bowing near the fingerboard. You have harmonics, both natural and artificial, etc., which really extend the pitch, the overall pitch of the sound of the piece. But for me... Uh, my all-time favourite is the hand clusters. Oh, yes, the, the hand clusters. Yeah. C4, which is the uh, homage to the famous Russian pianist. And it only happens in one place, and it's the only section which is played solely by the piano. 
Um, so hand clusters is a technique where the pianist is asked to play as many notes as possible between the two designated notes. And I can assure you we have so much fun in class uh, trying to get students to have a go at the hand clusters. Everything from using pieces of wood <gasps> to reach all of the various... What's the most you think that you've got? The, the most painted notes. It, there, there's that's the beauty of Barry's music. Yeah. You are guided by intuition. You just got to make sure you have your two designated notes. Let's have a listen. Let's have a listen to that hand clusters. <laughs> So before we finish up, do you guys have any final tips for tackling the Barry work? Well, one would be there is no double bass in this piece. Yeah, that, okay. that, that yeah. creeps You hear quartet and you think, yeah. Yeah, because it, and it's a natural mistake to make, you know, yeah. but um, just be careful. You know, if you're writing double bass and you're talking about Barry, that's when you do rub it out, you know, get rid of it. Rub off your, that out. Rub that out, exactly. <laughs> um, I think for me, and I'm not at all biased, but remember your pin number of one three nine three two and be able to say something about how each statement of every theme compares with the other. So when you try to compile the 18 sections of the Barry score, mark out 18 boxes in a line. And here's the tip. Make sure to put section E1 in box nine, then use all of the other tips. The one three nine three two, the pairing of the C sections, C3 on its own, and then the three couples, remembering, as you said, Sive, they're not speaking to one another. They're never heard beside one another. And I promise you, you'll be able to compile the structure of the score. We have a quote, actually, that I love sharing with my students, um, because I think there's so much to contemporary music, in particular uh, Barry's style. And he says it himself. He says, here we have a piece ending with completely new possibilities pointing in different directions. And isn't that where all our leaving students are as they embark on their journey in June? So we wish them every best of luck. That's Absolutely. a lovely note to end on. Ethel, Mary, thank you so much for joining us. That's the end of this episode of RT Lyric FM's LC podcast. Good luck, everyone. Thank you for listening to this episode of the RTE Lyric FM Leaving Cert Music Podcast. Hosted by me, Sive Downs, with guests Ethel Glancy and Mary McFadden. This podcast was produced by Gail Henry. You can listen to the rest of the episodes in this series on the RTE radio app.